would you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 45 to 54. That's what we'll be working through this morning. John eleven forty five to 54. <clears throat> Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you, you use us, you use your church for your glorious purposes, and you even use those who have no faith in Jesus to accomplish your will and purposes, and we see that in this passage. Father, we thank you for your word because your word speaks clearly to us, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning according to what you say in these passages. Teach us, Lord, and I pray that by your Holy Spirit that we would be effected because of what your word says. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it right or is it, is it right or more morally ethical to let one person die to spare the life of many others? Or is it unethical to spare the life or to sacrifice the life of five to save, say, the life of one? It's a complex question, right? It's an ethical question. And it's actually, it's, this is a question that, uh, that philosophers have wrestled with in a problem called the, the trolley problem, which goes something like this. A runaway trolley is speeding down the tracks and is headed towards five workers. And if it continues in its, in its current course, well, then they are going to die. But Adam is standing next to a switch, a large switch, that can derail the track, the, the trolley, onto another track, but that track has one person in it. And so which 
does he choose? Does he derail the track to kill one, or does he derail the, or keep the, the trolley on its current course and killing five? You know, what's high, what the, how the, the tension is only heightened by the fact that, there, that Adam is in a place where he, has, where he has the power to make a decision, but that he actually can change the course and take the life of one if he so chooses. But the question is, is a hard question. And I don't think it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, and I don't think there is a right or wrong answer to that question. But long before philosophers wrestled with that question, God himself wrestled with that question. In fact, even the religious teachers wrestled with that question. We see that in the passage. And while you and I may not know how we would answer the question, I think we could say that how they would have answered the question. They would have said, yes, sacrifice the life of one to spare the five, without question, without a doubt. But is it really that simple? And so I think what we'll see is that this question is a lot more complicated than we might realize, and definitely a lot more complicated than they realize. And so as we proceed through the passage, we'll see two things. And the first thing we'll see is the, this corrupt deliberation of the Sanhedrin, which then will lead to this, uh, this uh, trolley problem. So a little bit of context, and you know this if you've been following along. Jesus had just performed a miracle where he raised a dead man back to life, a dead man who had been in the tomb for four days, right? And all of Jesus' miracles are incredible, but this one, this one is different because this one, he actually raised a dead man back to life. This is like no other. And the Pharisees recognize this as a sign, and the Gospel of John, the author, doesn't just call Jesus' works as miracles, but he actually identifies them as signs, and that's noteworthy. And the reason being, because signs always point to something, right? They never point to themselves. They're always intended to communicate something. They're intended to be interpreted in a certain way. And so Jesus' works are identified as signs because they're intended to tell you something about Jesus. Every single one of his works in the Gospel of John is intended to tell you something about who he is. And with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that's intended to communicate to people, to the audience, to the readers, that Jesus is not only greater than death itself, but also that he is one with the Father, that Jesus has the Father's ears, that God is always listening to the words and to the prayers of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, John Calvin says that there are two purposes behind miracles. The first, one of the purposes, is to prepare for faith. That is, to soften the heart in order to prepare the person to receive Jesus Christ. And then the second purpose is to generate faith, that upon seeing a miracle, that the person believes in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard to tell. I mean, we don't have the full picture of these, of these followers, of these Jews who uh, are said to have believed in Jesus. And through the Gospel of John, we've seen that many people believe in Jesus, but it doesn't turn out that they actually believe in him at all. But I don't think it's bad to be optimistic in this sense, when it says that they believed in Jesus on account of his miracle, right, I think that perhaps they may have had the right saving faith in Jesus Christ on account of what Jesus had done. And so they're believing on account of his works, right? Jesus had said before that he is one with the Father. He is sent from the Father, but this miracle proved his claims. Now, Jesus will say that it is better to believe in 
in his words than it is in his works, right? And when he says that to Thomas, the doubting Thomas, when Jesus reappears, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead and appears to his disciples and Thomas refuses to believe until he sees Jesus face to face and he is able to touch his body where the nails were. Other than that, he won't believe. But then when Jesus appears before him and he actually touches Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is believing on account of Jesus' words, then his works. But believing in the works is better than no faith at all, for sure. So there were some who believed on account of Jesus' miracle. Praise the Lord. Now, but then in verse 46, it tells us, but... But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Or alternatively, there were some who did not believe, right? Which is pretty, pretty astounding. Like these are individuals who witnessed Jesus raising a dead man back to life, and yet they still don't believe in Jesus. That's remarkable, and kind of, kind of quite. It's surprising, and it reminds me actually of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke chapter 16. Now, I don't think that Lazarus in Luke 16 is the same Lazarus here in, in John 11. But in the story of the, of the rich man and Lazarus, in Luke 16, verse 19, it goes like this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and, fly, and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to the, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. I mean, just his audacity to, I mean, to still have this poor man serving him, even in the afterlife. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, there's a lot to say about that passage, but for this sake of this sermon, this is what you need to take away. That seeing is not always believing. Seeing something doesn't mean that you're automatically going to believe. The rich man and Lazarus tells you that. So if you're ever, believe, if you're ever waiting to see something before you believe, that's no guarantee that you're going to believe when you see it. I mean, just think, Jesus just raised that dead man back to life. And still, some people did not believe. Jesus himself was raised from the dead and appeared to many. 
and not everybody believed in Jesus. Seeing is not always believing. But when the light of the gospel comes, when the light of the world, when Jesus Christ comes into the world, there's only two responses. There's only way, two ways that you can respond. Either you will embrace the light or you will further embrace the darkness. Right, we've seen this theme in the Gospel of John, this, this connection between darkness and wickedness and evil, and that darkness resides in man's heart. It tells in John chapter 1 that Jesus, that um, the people love the darkness rather than the light. And so there's no neutral ground. You either believe in Jesus and embrace the light, or you do not believe in Jesus and run further away from the light. Right, and this is the case here in the passage. Jesus performs a miracle, performs a sign. Some believe, and then some don't. In fact, they even go further and tell the Pharisees, hey, look at what Jesus is doing. And these individuals may have been sympathizers with the religious teachers, probably sharing in the same concerns as the Pharisees. And what were those concerns? And these concerns, the passage tells, were twofold. So, the religious teachers hear about what Jesus is doing. He just raised a dead man back to life. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they all come together in this council, which is known as the, the Sanhedrin. And just to have you an idea what the Sanhedrin is, just think of it as the Supreme Court of the United States with Caiaphas, the high priest, kind of acting as the president. So in other words, this is a very, very powerful elite group. And so they're coming together they're trying to figure out what are we going to do about Jesus. And they have two concerns. And one of their concerns is that their nation will be taken away. That is that Jesus will continue to grow in popularity, that people will believe in him, will, will gather such a large following that people will want to make him king. And then the Romans and Caesar will see this as a threat and so Caesar will, would then send a legion of soldiers to just snuff out this Jesus movement and also take away their privileges as well, privileges that they've been able to enjoy. Even though they're not an autonomous nation, there are privileges like they can worship at the temple and make sacrifices and continue in their customs and way of life. Those things would be taken away if the Romans saw that these people were a threat. So they were afraid of losing their nation Verse 47 says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So they're recognizing that Jesus is performing a lot of signs. Jesus is doing a lot of things. People are following him. People are believing in him, becoming his disciples. And they're like, What are we going to do? If we let him go on like this, everybody is going to believe in him. So they're recognizing, they're knowing that Jesus is doing these things. But there's a difference between conviction and stubbornness. Right, when you, have, when you have your convictions, right, you stick to your convictions, even if most people are in a different, are leading in a different direction. But the difference between conviction and stubbornness is that conviction is based on truth. Conviction is based on things that are right and good. But stubbornness, even when evidence is presented, even when, when advice and counsel is there, when everything is telling you otherwise, you stick to your guns. You stick to what you think is right because of what you want. You stick to what you want and are unwilling to bend in a different direction. That's just stubbornness. And so their unwillingness to bend 
It's not because of conviction, it's because of stubbornness. And this is the reason why they're so obstinate and inflexible. Because of, and this is, leads to the second concern, which is that they are afraid of losing their place. Now, what does that mean? They're afraid of losing their place. It means that they're afraid of losing their privileged position. I mean, just think, this is the Sanhedrin, the most powerful people among the Hebrews. These are teachers of God's law. These are the people that people, these are the ones that people look up to. These are the ones who are making the decisions. These are the ones who are sort of setting the example. These are the ones that people are praising in the crowds. And so their fear is that they are going to lose their privileged position, their status, their prestige, and even their luxurious living. That's what they're ultimately afraid of losing. And it's a fear rooted in pride. Now, what is pride? Pride is the sinful disposition to sit on the throne of God. It is the tendency to to want to sit on God's throne, a throne that only belongs to God, and being unwilling to step off that throne. Pride insists in its own way, wants its own way, wants to get things done its own way, wants what it wants without anyone telling telling them otherwise. That's what pride is essentially about. And that's the kind of fear that these religious teachers had, a fear rooted in pride. But let's not only look at them, let's look at ourselves as well. Have you been sitting on the throne of God? Are there things that you are just unwilling to give up? Even though you may, you may even know that the Lord is calling you to give up certain things. Maybe because it's sinful, maybe because maybe it's not sinful, maybe it would be better for you to let it go but you're just unwilling to let it go. In that sense, you're trying to sit on the throne. What are those things you're unwilling to let go of? And when we don't want to let go of things, when we, we, or when, we, when there is a, a threat to losing the things that we want or the things that we have, or even to our own way and desires, so there's a fear, there's an anxiety, and there's a stress sometimes because, well, when we... Because when we're on the throne, well, we're, on, we're in control. Right? And we can, the most trustworthy person is our own selves. And so, you know, and it might be material possession. Maybe you have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Or maybe it's a sin in your life that you're just unwilling to let go of. You're trying to sit on the throne. And it's time to step off the throne. And here's a prayer. And it's, it's a courageous prayer. So I would say like that. I would, I would dare you to pray this way. And I, I don't see it as just like coming to the Lord once and praying this way, but see it as the disposition of your heart. And that is this. Would you dare come before the Lord and just say, God, here's a blank sheet of paper. And I mean that figuratively. God, here's the blank sheet of paper. Here's the blank slate. Write what you will of me. What is it that you want of me? 
It doesn't matter what season you're in. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. It doesn't matter how old you are. Don't just think that because of where you're at in life right now that the Lord has, doesn't have something for you to do or have something for you. But you will never know if you never ask. So go before the Lord. And it's a courageous prayer, right? Because it, it means that you're letting go of the reins. It means that you're letting God be in control instead of you. Just come before the Lord and say, God, what will you have of me? What will you have me do in this season? What do you want of me? What do you want me to let go of? And to trust that he has something much better. Right, these religious teachers, right, they were, they were, they could not let go of the reins. And they had this condemnable fear because they were unwilling to forsake their pride, let go of the reins in order to receive something much better, and that is eternal life. They would rather have this luxurious living here on earth and having the prestige and the status before men rather than having eternal life. So they missed out on something much better. God can write a better story than you can. Let go of the reins and just trust him. And this corrupt deliberation of the Supreme Court, the justices then come to the conclusion that Jesus has to be stopped for the sake of their status, but they have no idea what to do. What do we do about this man? Everybody is following him. But then in steps the president, Caiaphas the high priest, who also happens to be an accidental prophet. So verse 49 but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Right, so that something has to be done. Right? They can't let Jesus to continue to do as he's been doing for so long now. Because otherwise they will, not, they will lose their nation, but most importantly to them, they will lose their status. But then in steps Caiaphas, right, the high priest, the president, to offer a solution. He says, you know nothing at all. Or to put it in another, word, in another way, you guys don't know anything. Or essentially, to put it more bluntly, he's saying, you guys are stupid. Essentially what he's saying not a very good leader to call your subordinate stupid. He could have probably read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. You guys are stupid. The answer is simple. You got to kill Jesus. You got to put him to death for the sake of the nation. That's the simple solution. It's kind of an ironic statement as well. As high priest, he understood better than anybody the significance of sacrifice. As the high priest, he was called upon once a year to enter the Holy of Holies, the place where no man entered except the high priest, the very place, the very place where the presence of God resided, to offer a sacrifice before the Lord to atone for the sins of, God, of, of God's people. And this was a dangerous position. 
right? Because if he made one false step, if he did one wrong thing, then he would have been killed. He would have been struck dead. And that's why he was tethered to a rope, so that if he dropped dead, well, then the people on the outside could drag his corpse out of the Holy of Holies because nobody could enter without dying. And so he, better than anybody else, understood what it meant to to perform a sacrifice or to give a substitute. And that word is important. It's very important to the Scriptures. And it's a word that is as old as the book of Genesis. And the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham is tested by God to sacrifice his one and only son. And so he gathered up his sins, he gathered up his son, and they go up to the mountain. And even Isaac, his son, understood this, right? Because he understood that you needed a sacrifice or substitute. So he looks at the thing and says, Dad, here's everything we have. Where is the sacrifice? Where's the substitute? And Abraham tells his son in Genesis 22, 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then in verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of, or in replacement of, or as a substitute of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And then later on in the book of Exodus, God is reigning upon the land of Egypt, his plagues. And up until the 10th plague, he made a distinction between God's people and the Egyptians. Right, everything that was happening to the Egyptians wasn't happening to the people of Israel. Up until you get to the 10th plague, where he says that God says that he will take the life of every firstborn child in every home. But he provides a condition to be met for God's people. He says if you take a lamb and you sacrifice it, and you take the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts, as it says in Exodus 12, Then, in verse 13 of Exodus 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this blood functioned as as a substitute for every firstborn child in every home. So when the angel of death came through the land and saw the blood, he knew that a substitute has been given in place of the firstborn son. And then later on, we have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that day, there were two sacrifices or two substitutes. One was a slaughtered animal in order to appease the wrath of God towards the sins of God's people. That animal would be slain, and then there was another animal, a scapegoat, was was how it was was identified. And then the high priest would lay his hand on on the scapegoat, symbolically representing the transferring of God's people, of the sins of God's people into the animal. And the the Hebrews considered this a a fate worse than death because the animal carried the sins of the people and then was cast out of the camp, away from the presence of God's people and away from the presence of God. And so Caiaphas understood the meaning of sacrifice. And I don't know if he intended it to be interpreted that way when he, when he suggested this reprehensible idea. But that's essentially what he's getting at. 
sacrificed Jesus to save the many. In a sense, it worked because they kept their nation, they kept their place, but only for so long because it would only be a matter of time in the near future when the Romans would come into Jerusalem, into Israel, and just ransack it and take away the temple and everything is lost. But what there is in the passage is this, what I call a Christological irony. And so the author tells us that Caiaphas was prophesying, even though Caiaphas didn't understand it, that Jesus would in fact die for the nation, not just for the nation, but for all those who are scattered abroad. And so unknown to Caiaphas, he was actually pointing to a substitute that we all need. So in fear of the wrath of the Romans and the loss of their privileged position, Caiaphas suggested that Jesus be the nation's substitute. Let's spare the nation by sacrificing Jesus. But the wrath of the Romans is minuscule in comparison to the wrath of God. All sin is an affront to the character and the person of God. Every sin is rooted in pride because every time we sin, we're saying that we want our way. We want what we want, and we will do what we want, even if it, me, even if it is something that God does not want for us. It's a, every sin is a crime against God. Not just a crime, but an infinite crime because it's against an infinite God. And how can a finite criminal pay a debt, an infinite debt to God? He can't. He never could. He's spending, he'd be spending infinity trying to pay back that debt to God. The trolley of the wrath of God was, is descending upon man. And the difference between the problem, the trolley problem, and the problem and the reality of the gospel and the passage is that in the trolley problem, right, you have one individual and you have five individuals who are innocent. But in the reality of the scriptures is that nobody is innocent. That the trolley of the wrath of God is coming upon all those who deserve it. Because there is nobody who is righteous and perfect on their own. And that God is the one who is at the switch. And he can either have that trolley come against us or derail the trolley and point it towards his son. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. So for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That for communicates a substitution that Christ died in our place, that Christ was our substitute. Because we were neither righteous now, according to the scriptures, we were neither good either. But the scandal of that passage says that God died, that Jesus Christ died for sinners. He died for us. So Caiaphas was right in a sense that Jesus would die for the nation. That is, for the nation of his people. And that he would also die to bring in together, into one fold, the people of God who was scattered across the world. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ became the substitute. He died in our place to spare us from the trolley of the wrath of God. And if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus Christ, then you're still standing at the track and that trolley is coming towards you. And the only way that you can be spared is by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, by entrusting your life to Jesus Christ. By letting go of the pride that is in your heart and humbly submitting yourself to living for God the glory of God and letting him write your story, then you're trying to write your own story. Trust in Jesus and follow him because today is that right time for him to step in and take that wrath for you. And brothers and sisters, as you're thinking about perhaps some of the things that the Lord might be calling you to give up, even if you're here this morning and maybe you have some fear and anxiety and just thinking about what the Lord might be calling you to give up, or even just thinking about that prayer of God just letting your will be done instead of mine. I just want to point you to the cross. Look at what Christ has done on your behalf. Listen to the humility of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the divine Son of God, the one who enjoyed this incredible fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, left it all to come to our earth to take on our flesh, to die on the cross for our sins. Right, he did that for you. And if God would be so, if Jesus would be so willing to give all that up for your sake, then how could you not also give up the things in your life that you are unwilling to let go of? Pride leads to fear but humility leads to courage. If you are humble before the Lord, and I want, you as, I want you to be as courageous as you could possibly be, but that only comes by submitting to the Lord. Instead of saying, God, here are my plans, bless them. Instead say, God, direct my steps. Guide my paths, be a light unto my feet, give me wisdom. Help me to know what you want of me. Help me to know what you will of me. Like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he was moments from crucifixion, he was agonizing over the coming suffering. He still prays, God, not my will, but your will. Do we have the courage to pray that prayer? And remember Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is calling you to give up something, or if God, if you want to be here and God wants you here, 
can't you not trust that God <laughs> has something much better? That if God was willing to give up his son to die in your place in order for you to receive forgiveness and eternal life, then how could you not trust that he will give you everything that you need to follow him, to trust him? The passage tells you that he's not going to call you to do something and just abandon you, but he's going to graciously give you everything that you need to succeed and to prosper and to walk according to his will. Let him write the story. Trust him. That walking in humility, you, have, you've been, you can have the courage to step out into that faith and let him direct your paths and all your steps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who did not need to come and die on the cross for our sins. He didn't have to do that. But instead, he came willingly and he asked that you would direct the trolley of your wrath in his direction instead of ours. We thank you, Jesus, for this incredible sacrifice. Lord, may we continue to look to the cross, not only as our example of humility and what it means to submit to the will of God, but also as our encouragement to continue to submit our lives unto the Lord. God, may we have the courage to come before you and say, God, here is my life. Direct it as you will. And that we would trust that you are with us and that you will graciously give us everything that we need to walk in the direction that you have called us to. We trust you, Lord, for all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.